Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We're talking about the uh, Democratic debates and your thoughts on that. It seemed to me that at the very least, we've got uh, at least four good, solid candidates for vice president, all excellent candidates for president as well. My point on this is that typically the vice president's job on a ticket is either to balance the ticket geographically, like LBJ did for Jack Kennedy, or to be the attack dog, the person with the shiv, the person who goes in and, and you know sticks it into their opponent, while the candidate, the person running for president, kind of rises above it all and speaks about, here's where we're going to go, and here are our grand visions, and then the vice president is out there just doing, you know, slashing the, uh, the, the competition, the opponent, aggressively. And I think that, you know, what we know now is that Julian Castro can do that, whether he survives last night, we'll see. Certainly Kamala Harris can do that. Pete Buttigieg, I think, is quite capable of that with his uh, dry wit. Might make a great vice presidential candidate if he doesn't make it to president. All of these are, you know, kind of on that caveat of if they don't make it to president. Senator Bernie Sanders is on the line. Our show is open to all of the presidential candidates. Any of them are welcome to come on. Senator Sanders, we're very pleased that you're here. Thank you so much for calling in this morning. Well, Tom, it's great to be with you. You'll excuse my voice. It's a little bit hoarse. We had a great rally, some 10,000 people out in Denver the other day, and I I think I forgot there was a microphone that would have helped, so there you go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you, you could tell it in your voice last night. You know, I've heard your voice that way before. It, it comes back. So I'm curious, and feel free to tell me it's none of my business, but at one point when Julian Castro was attacking Joe Biden, it looked like you leaned over and said something to him, something perhaps supportive. I don't know. Do you want to share anything about that incident, or would you rather move along? Well, all it was, to be honest with you, is I, I don't think it's it's sometimes hard when you're up there on the stage to be hearing things. Uh-huh. And I don't think Biden had heard what Kashko had said. And he asked me what he said, and I told him. I see. Well, that makes perfect sense. Well, you know, it's always frustrating that there are so many issues out there. And when you have 10 candidates up there, it's hard to address them all, get the time to address them. But I think to me... Two issues uh, come to the fore. And, and number one, 
is the discussion that I had with Joe Biden regarding health care. And I am not surprised but disappointed that Biden is echoing the remarks of the healthcare industry, which made $100 billion in profit last year, and are doing everything that they can uh, to prevent us from doing what the American people want, and certainly what Democrats want, and that is move to Medicare for all, the single-payer program. And to my mind, we are well beyond the policy issue because it is impossible to defend the dysfunctionality of the current system. We have a system right now, Tom, and everybody has got to understand this. We are spending twice as much per person on health care as do the people of any other country, Canada, UK, France, Germany, etc. Twice as much. And yet we have 87 million people who are uninsured or underinsured. 30,000 people a year die because they don't get to a doctor when they should. And we have 500,000 people going bankrupt as a result of medical bills. How insane is that? We are spending by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. I went to Canada last month. Price of insulin for diabetics in Canada, the tenth the price of what it is here in the United States because of the greed and corruption and price fixing of the pharmaceutical industry. So this is a system that cannot be defended. It's a system that is simply designed to make huge profits for the drug companies and the insurance companies. We have got to move to Medicare for all. I am disappointed but not surprised in Biden's opposition. Yeah. Senator, it seemed to me, particularly when, forget who was doing the questioning, but I think it might have been Jonathan Carl or whatever his name is. But anyhow, he was trying to basically, it seemed to me, get Elizabeth Warren, and by proxy yourself, to make the mistake that Walter Mondale made. And for younger listeners, people who don't remember the 1984 election, a lot of people thought this was the moment when Walter Mondale lost that election. If I can just play this clip, it's about 10 seconds or so, 15 seconds. And I'd love to get your thoughts on the politics of all this. Here's, here's Walter Mondale in 1984 when he was running against Ronald Reagan. Mr. Reagan will raise taxes, and so will I. He won't tell you. And then he goes on to say that, you know, Reagan's going to is going to do it in a way that will hurt working class people. And and he won't do that. He'll have his tax increases against the rich. It was almost like they were just like trying to wring that statement or something, some variation on that out of Elizabeth Warren last night. And, well, I don't, go ahead. The answer is, <clears throat> I think you're right. But I don't think they have to wring it out of Biden. I think that is exactly what Biden's trying to do. And this is why this is very disingenuous and dishonest. Yeah. And that is right now, I'll give you an example, Tom. You know, and I see this every day. I talk to a guy who works for a big company and has a fairly good health insurance program. He pays $1,000, I think it's a family of four. He pays $1,000 a month in premiums, and he has a $4,000 deductible. So in other words, he is spending out of his own pocket, not to mention his employer, he is spending $16,000 a year in premiums and out-of-pocket expense before his insurance program kicks in. All right? right? Now, you can call those premiums premiums. You can call them insurance company taxes. You can call them whatever you want to call them. 
Last I heard, though, a premium is dollars. So what Biden is trying to do is say, Bernie is trying to raise your taxes. What he is ignoring is Bernie is doing away with all of those premiums, doing away with all of the out-of-pocket expenses, doing away with all of the co-payments, doing, making sure that nobody in America under Medicare for All will pay more than $200 a year for prescription drugs, make sure that home health care is covered, make sure that dental care, eyeglasses, and hearing aids are covered. But getting back to your point, this is the oldest Republican talking point in the world. Oh, your taxes are going up. Well, the truth, though, is that at the end of the day, you're going to be paying significantly less for your health care on the Medicare for All than you do under the current system. So I guess if there's one human being in the world who really gets the joy and just loves paying premiums, well, I, I guess we're going to disappoint that person. But most people understand that whether you pay premiums or whether you're paying taxes, the money's coming out of your pocket, and people want to spend less on health care, and on the Medicare for all, the average person will spend significantly less than he or she is spending today. You know, I'm a little bit tired of Biden echoing Republican talking points, health industry talking points, in his attacks on Medicare for all. We can have that debate, but we should not be disingenuous. Yeah. Uh, I, at the end of the day, if you're paying a premium right now, we're going to eliminate that premium. And at the end of the day, we're going to eliminate out-of-pocket expenses, uh, co-payments, uh, and nobody in America will pay more than $200 a year for the prescription drugs they need because we're going to take on the pharmaceutical industry and stop their greed in which they are charging people by far the highest prices in the world for medicine. So we can argue it, but I think Biden's points are, are really quite disingenuous. Yeah, yeah. So well said. Senator Bernie Sanders, it's so great to have you with us, Senator. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Okay, Tom, you take care. Bye-bye. You too. You're listening to Tom Hartman. There was a third party involved last night, and that third party was the insurance companies and the big pharma who had some kind of a pack, some kind of a political action committee or whatever that was running ads saying basically, you know, you don't want these crazy socialists to take away your, your health care. And then, of course, there was an ad. Now, this, it, it would have varied. Apparently, only the ABC stations owned by Sinclair ran some of these ads. So this would have been what's considered a local ad. But people all over the country were seeing it, so we're still kind of sorting that out. I, I still haven't heard from you know everybody as to exactly what that is and who that is and how that works and all that kind of thing. But it seems like that's the case. And and the other ad was a picture of Alexander Ocasio Cortez's face, and then something started burning in the center of her face, burned her face away, and then behind her this picture of her face that you're seeing in flames. Behind that is you know, a bunch of skulls from the Khmer Rouge, you know, the murderous Pol Pot regime. And this was apparently put up by a woman who was a Republican member of Congress who lost the election to a Democrat. It was utterly, utterly bizarre. So it seems to me that that was the other player in the room. I asked last night on Twitter, you know, Julian Castro went after Joe Biden in a way that I think many people interpreted as an attack on Joe's age or his memory. 
And, you know, I ask on Twitter, is this, is this going to hurt or help Castro? There seemed to be a consensus that it would hurt him. And we'll see, right? I mean, time will tell. But it certainly seemed to me that uh, particularly that the media is certainly trying to make this Castro will be hurt by this. And the big mistake that Julian Castro made, obviously, he had he was ready. Right. See, here's the dynamic that most people are not discussing. The dynamic is that at the end of the day, the Democratic nominee is either going to be one of the two progressives, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, or it's going to be one of the so-called centrists, Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, Julian Castro, you know, one of these other candidates that are not quite as progressive as Warren or Sanders. They're not bad. I mean, they're good Democrats, all of them. But, you know, they're willing to take corporate money and that sort of thing. It's going to be one of those two things. And they all know this. And, and Harris is kind of in a gray area in between the two because she fully supported Medicare for all. And now she's dialed that back a little bit and said, well, you know, you can keep your private insurance if you want. But, you know, if not, Medicare for all, sure, great thing. Which actually I think is a reasonable middle ground. But that's just me. I do think that at the end of the day, we're probably going to get there. But it's a, in my opinion, it's also a good thing that Democrats are messaging the way that Republicans traditionally have. That is to say, we're going to ask for everything. We're going to demand everything. We're going to say, this is what we want and this is where we're going. And then, and, and you, and, you know, instead of negotiating with yourself, say, this is what we want. And then, you know, you might have to give up a little bit. I think this was one of the mistakes that was made in the whole Affordable Care Act negotiation was, you know, the Affordable Care Act was crafted and it had a public option and it was brought forward like, here it is, you guys, you know, it's, it's all set to go. Please like it. And frankly, I think that, uh, you know, a much more effective political strategy would have been to say, we're going to go for Medicare for all. It's full out, every single payer, everything. And then what you settle for is the Affordable Care Act with a public option. And at that point, I think probably Joe Lieberman wouldn't have blown it up. But in any case, I think that this is a strong strategy for Democrats to say, damn it, we're not, we're not going to take a half-baked system. We are going to do it the whole way. We are going to do it correctly. Medicare for all is where we stand. It's where we're planting our flag. And, you know, we, we may die here, but this is where we're going to stand. And let's not forget, it was Harry Truman who first suggested a single-payer system. Franklin Roosevelt wanted to do it. He wanted to add it to Social Security, but he concluded that would just be too big a lift. It would be too radical a change all at once. And so he decided to put it off, but he rolled out the same thing. You know, that you have an absolute right to health care in 1944 when he proposed his, his second Bill of Rights. So Franklin Roosevelt proposed this, Harry Truman proposed it, LBJ, when he passed Medicare, was very clear that he expected Medicare would eventually cover everybody. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And if the health insurance industry made $100 billion in profits last year, that's $100 billion that could be paying for your health care. You know, there's all kinds of health claims to be made for CBD oil, uh, you know, among them that it's potent, it has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties, and increasingly it's looking like this stuff is really good. Um, New Leaf Natural CBD Oil and New Leaf Natural CBD Oil is the one that I like the best. It doesn't get you high. It's ideal for people who don't want 
that. They don't want to use medical marijuana, but they do want cannabinoids. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals, NU Leaf Naturals. That's the highest quality CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's n-u-leafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to n-u-leafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Tom Perez is on the line. What are your thoughts on what happened last night? Well, we had a great discussion of issues, Tom. I think people saw our deep bench, and people understand that you know, there are differences of how candidates approach how we get from where we are now on health care to universal health care. But everyone wants to get up to the summit of the mountain. Everyone wants to make sure that if you have a pre-existing condition, you can keep your coverage. You know, everybody on that stage is a thousand percent better than Donald Trump. Amen. And I'm proud of the deep bench that we have there. I'm, I'm glad we're talking about issues of race. I'm glad we're talking about how to reduce gun violence. I'm glad we're talking about how we ensure that we are a nation of laws and a nation of immigrants. The Democrats are fighting for so many of the issues that are just front and center in who we are as a nation and what we are as a democracy. And the energy there in the the arena was electric. There's opportunities here in Texas, actually, and we did this debate down here because Texas, believe it or not, is an emerging battleground. Um, A poll came out the other day. 47% of the voters said that they're going to vote for the Democrat for president. 42% they're going to vote for Trump here in Texas. Hmm. Um, So his divisiveness is being noticed across this country. Yeah, I think he has done a really good job of exposing exactly how corrupt the Republican Party has become. I mean, he's just the, the, the poster boy for this. Tom Perez, former U.S. Secretary of Labor, chair of the DNC. Chairman Perez, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you. Sorry I couldn't get there sooner. That's quite all right. Come back another time when we can have a little more time. I I look forward to it. Thank you very much. Josh in Boulder, Colorado. Hey, Josh, what's up? Hey, Tom. I was so excited to hear the moderators bring up the Amazon forest fires and pointing to its connection to our diet. I think it may be the first time veganism was ever brought up in a presidential debate. But I was so disappointed with Cory Booker's response. He said no, and then repeated the translation in Spanish, no, making a joke of it. Now, I don't know if he's just scared of Texas. Austin's a great vegan city, but he could have followed up with some information on how our diet does affect climate change or our health. He could have even brought up his own animal welfare plan, which is pretty extensive. Why do you think he fumbled this question? Because everybody from Rush Limbaugh to Donald Trump have been pounding on this idea that the Green New Deal and the Democrats more generally want to take away your light bulbs, your plastic straws, and your hamburgers. And this has been a problem in the Democratic Party for a long, long time. Republicans come out, they make outrageous claims. They used to do it just around the word liberal, for example. Democrats stopped using the word liberal from the middle of the Clinton administration right into the middle of the Bush administration. And then they kind of replaced it with progressive tentatively. It's this, you know, let's pussyfoot around. Let's be really, really careful. Let's be very cautious. And I agree with you. You know, Cory Booker had an opportunity to actually tell the truth about climate last night and say, yeah, the second, third or fourth leading cause of carbon emissions into the atmosphere is 
our agricultural system explicitly. I say third or fourth largest because if you identify animal agriculture, all agriculture might be the second or third, depending on whose numbers you're using. This is substantial. And he could have said, you know, you don't have to become a vegan like me. He could have said, you know, if you just take one meal a week and don't eat meat, you know, just have a vegetable-based meal, one meal a week. If everybody in America did that, it would make a difference. He could have even said it would make a difference, but I don't plan to legislate it. But sure. right now, it's yeah. unfortunate. Meatless Mondays. The... I mean, Meatless Mondays right. are actually taking off, you know. And now you've got, you know, Burger King selling their Impossible Burger. And Del Taco has got, you know, Impossible Tacos. And the Impossible, of course, is the meatless hamburger replacement. And the other company, Beyond Meat, you know, their stock has just exploded. It's, you know, it's oh, going yeah. all over the place. And... And unfortunately, the headline on uh, Yahoo is Booker, a vegan on whether Americans should follow his diet. No. And Fox has a similar headline. And it's just unfortunate that he didn't take the opportunity to speak some truth. Yeah, I'm with you, Josh. Josh, thanks a lot for the call. Kathy in Tacoma, Washington, watching us on Facebook Live. Hey, Kathy, what's up? So did you hear about uh, the Greenpeace action yesterday? Was that what interrupted the debate? Well, I did hear Joe got heckled some. Yeah, I don't I'm still know trying to figure out who that was and what they said. <laughs> well, no, tell, tell them what happened yesterday was oh, yeah, Greenpeace yeah. did a, uh-huh. just an amazing, breathtaking action. Mm-hmm. They suspended, I've heard reports of 11, I've heard reports of 24 activists off of the bridge, and they blocked the Houston Ship Channel for 12 hours. Wow. And, yes, and... Um, and my, because I'm a citizen journalist here in Tacoma, we have, you know, some major things going on here. Yeah. And so um, I'm fascinated with media. Plus, I, you know, in graduate school, I studied uh, mass communication and political campaigning. And so I'm just fascinated with power. And it's all about the media because so many people only consume TV. I live in a disabled senior building. Mm-hmm. And that's the case. If they get any news, it's from TV, which is largely why even I and a couple of years ago, um, you know, didn't know anything much about climate, didn't really know what fracking was or anything. And then, um, you know, uh, six people, including including a, a, a grandmother and a great-grandmother, locked down down in the port of Tacoma where Puget Sound Energy had started to dig for this tank that they've now been building for over two and a half years mm-hmm. without a permit, this 8 million gallon LNG tank. It's actually going to be a frack gas refinery. Kathy, thank you for letting us know about that Greenpeace event. That's a good one. Robbie in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Robbie, what's on your mind today? I watched the debates. I think Bernie did a great job. I'm really happy that you had him on. But then to have Tom Perez literally say, look, echo the, the big pharma thing about how people want their Medicare coverage, the existing coverage. It's a shame because, and I got a proposal for you, and I know you're going to disagree with it, but let me get the proposal out. You're a person who says that we need to vote blue no matter who. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, check this out. For you and everybody who says that, you know, you, we need to vote blue no matter who, don't vote in the primary. Over 50% of the voters that you tasked on here wanted Bernie well, Sanders. I'm not just going to vote for some random Democrat in a primary, Robbie. I'm going to vote for a progressive What is vote blue for no matter it who It means, means in a general election... That I'm not going to vote Biden. red. I'm not going to vote for a Republican. And I am going to vote. 
whoever is running against Donald Trump, I'm going to vote for them. I'm not going to I'm not willing to take the chance that Donald Trump gets another term. I think it'll be the end of democracy in the United States. And I think that'll spread all over the world. and It'll be extraordinarily destructive. Robbie, thank you for the call. Beto O'Rourke, this guy, this Republican from the House of Representatives in Texas said, my AR is ready for you, Robert Francis. And he reported it to the FBI. Cory Booker last night was talking about Joe Biden essentially fumbling things. You know, you could kind of see the gears running in his head. I was watching CNN's commentary after the uh, debate last night. And they were interviewing Cory Booker and they said, you know, well, what did you think about what happened when Julian Castro tried to take him on? He said, Castro has some really legitimate concerns. Can he be someone in a long, grueling campaign that can get the ball over the line? And he has every right to call that out. That's what Castro said. And at that point, then the person questioning him said, well, are you talking about his age? And at that point, then Julian Castro says, no, I'm not talking about his age. I'm, you know, he's been like this for years and years. I said this uh, yesterday or the day before that this is the third or fourth time that Joe Biden has made a serious run for the White House. Every time in the past, he has managed to put his foot in his mouth enough times that, you know, people ended up basically not taking him seriously as a candidate. So there is something going on there with regard to this whole discussion. And, and Booker and, and Klobuchar and some of the others are basically if Biden takes himself out of the race one way or another, or if Biden starts falling in the polls, there's going to be a need for somebody who is not Bernie or Elizabeth to pick up that mantle of being the centrist Democrat who can work with Republicans and, you know, quack, quack, quack. And each one of them is hoping it's going to be them. Yes, you have Warren and Sanders on the progressive side tying up about 40% of the vote. And in a way, they're competing with each other. I mean, if one or the other of them was to drop out of the race, the other person would immediately have almost twice as much support as Joe Biden has right now. And in fact, more than Joe Biden and all the other centrists combined. But that's not how the race is working. So Bernie and Elizabeth, their principal competition is each other because they're both speaking to the base of the Democratic Party. The so-called centrists who think that they're reaching out beyond the base, those folks are the ones who are basically, Biden is holding that space. Joe Biden is holding that space. They are hoping that if Joe decides to drop out or if Joe starts falling in the polls or if Joe makes some, you know, gaffe that from which you can't be recovered, something that goes way beyond saying that when you're raising your kids, you want to have the record player on at night. Uh, you know, that's relatively minor, but, you know, some something major that, you know, might blow up his candidacy. They want to be there to catch that. Those voters and uh, and those voters, by the way, are the ones who many of the quote, those voters are the people who have a whole pile of money, you know, a lot of money who are willing to do high dollar fundraisers and who are willing to support a candidate. And, you know, they're the people who were supporting Barack Obama. One of the things that is yet to be seen is whether it's possible, if our nominee is Sanders or Warren, is whether they can compete in an actual general election with small dollar contributions, or whether they're going to have to reach out 
to large dollar donors. My guess is that the way that they could play that is the campaign itself would only do small dollar donations. And you would have a bunch of peripheral political action committees that would be running ads essentially on their behalf, but not coordinating with them. So I think, I think it's entirely possible, but we'll see. Paul in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's up? Uh, I watched uh, a solid two-plus hours of the debates last night, and I, I'd like to point something out that I think has been a, a long-term problem with the Democratic Party as a whole, undermining its ability to really maintain a broad coalition. The two main issues that I watched last night was the Medicare for All and gun control. And at the one point, you had, obviously, the Medicare for All proponents such as Bernie and, uh, and Elizabeth Warren, saying it's Medicare for all, it's for everybody, and we're going to finance this to make sure everyone has access to doctors and hospitals. And then you had the, I think as you correctly pointed out, the Republican talking point started saying, look, I believe the American people know how to spend their money better than we do. If they want to have choice, they need to have the choice. Right. They can spend the money. This is also the argument, by the way, that yeah. George W. Bush made in 2005 for privatizing Social Security. People should have a choice whether right. or not to have a retirement plan. But here's where they undermine themselves. In the very next major issue of gun control, you people aren't smart enough to know what you're doing with your own money to go out and buy these guns. You're not going to have them. We're going to ban these guns. We're going to take your guns. Right. Now, you can't be talking out of both sides of your mouth because the public at large realizes that. And Amy Klobuchar, she emphasized the point. She, she came point, at, point blank and said, a house divided can't stand. And she understands where this is going. It, it's not just a little technical tweaking of messaging. It's bleeding an ability to put together a coalition, and the Democratic Party has to put together a coalition that it can maintain and yeah. sustain into the future. And you're not going to do it by adopting the moderate, oh, you, you know, you know what to do with your money. Yeah, I know what to do with my money if I want to buy a cheesesteak or a pretzel, but not on the level of social policy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, Amy Klobuchar was really speaking to, when she said that, she was chastising Julian Castro for uh, going after Joe Biden. And she was quoting Jesus. But that said, it's a point that's well taken. Until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that because after reading about university research into, mo into a molecule in olive oil that regulates appetite, my wife convinced me that there was one worth sharing. And I have to say, a year later, she was right. Louise once said her app. Louise said once her appetite and cravings were under control, losing weight was easy, and she's kept it off. I've also heard from listeners that it worked for them. The fact that the only ingredient in ridges and occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant has appealed to folks as well. Listen, if you're trying to listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Ridgezone a try. Use the promo code TOM and receive up to 65% off plus free shipping. That's right, 65% off and free shipping. Go to Ridgezone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. RidUZone.com. Use the promo code TOM to get that 65% discount plus free shipping. Go to RidUZone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. RidUZone. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get 65% off plus free shipping. RidUZone.com. Joey in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, Joey, what's up? I wanted to 
mention, why didn't Bernie say what you have told on the program so long about education, that, uh, you know, when these schools stop being funded by property taxes, you know, he could have sold that right up. You've said that so many times, I don't know why he didn't mention it. I, you know, I can't speak for Bernie <laughs> or, you know, anybody else. I mean, you know, it's, it is our intellectual infrastructure. It really needs to be positioned in that way, in my opinion. Yeah, it should be that it's paid all of them get the same amount of funding and not just, you know, based on property taxes so that the richer neighborhoods get the better funding, you know. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that was put into place back in the late 1800s and the early 1920s specifically and intentionally to maintain apartheid in the United States, to maintain Jim Crow, so that poor neighborhoods, particularly poor black neighborhoods, would continue to have crappy schools. And that, you know, high-end neighborhoods, largely white neighborhoods, would have really good schools. And education, of course, is the foundation of everything. And, and you know, the people who put this thing together were not idiots. They know that, Joey. Yeah, hey, number one. <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you. Okay, thanks a lot, Joey. Good to hear from you. Uh, we just have about 40 seconds here until we're going to hit this break, so uh, it wouldn't be fair to put somebody on the air. I'll just, I'll just add to that, though. One of the things that we learned, and this is something that you need to tell everybody you know about, and this is the argument for free college for everybody, is when, when my dad and my wife's dad came back from World War II, they both went to college on the GI Bill. Louise's dad went all the way through law school. In fact, he became the assistant attorney general for the state of Michigan. My dad went to college for two years. He wanted to be a history professor when he grew up. He had to drop out because mom got pregnant with me and he went to work in a steel mill. Uh, which is how he got exposed to asbestos, which is what ultimately killed him. But the bottom line is that what we know is that that investment, for every $1 we invested in that generation of young people who are coming back from World War II, for every $1 we invested in their college educations, we got a $7 return in their, in their paying more taxes than they would have paid if they hadn't had that education. And that's a pretty damn good investment, seven to one return on your money. That's why every other country in the world does this. Barbara in Sun City, Arizona. Your thoughts, Barbara? Okay, well, I think um, Bernie Sanders is a little bit disingenuous himself. I'm on Medicare. Mm -hmm. If you make over, I think, eleven or 1200 a month, you have to automatically get $200 taken out of your your Medicare check to pay for Part B. And you mean then out of your Social Security check? Your, yeah, your Social Security right. check. Right. And then you're making $1,000 a month to live on, and you have to pay for your prescription drugs. Yeah, well, it's both Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan and Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for All plan, and frankly, the plans that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and I, I'm not sure the details of Pete Buttigieg's, but those plans, they're all saying we need to reinvent Medicare so that there's no more deductibles. So that it does cover things like teeth and eyeglasses and hearing and mental health. We need to do that not only for our seniors, but to make that available as insurance for everybody else in the United States. So uh, nobody is saying, let's take the existing Medicare system with all its warts and problems and 20% being paid for by private health insurance and all that other stuff. Nobody, is, to the best of my knowledge, I mean, I, I may be wrong on this, but I don't think so. I don't think anybody is saying, let's simply take that system and use that. Well, I, I think the, the problem and why people are, you know, going with Joe is that they're afraid of exactly what they have. I mean, you know, what we have is horrible. 
It's just a bad know, Medi- I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm paying a lot less for Medicare now, paid. even with Medicare supplemental. And I've had nothing but really great service for Medicare. Well, I've been I on have for three years. Service, but you need you need the supplemental, otherwise you well, of course. can't afford Of course, but that's still, I mean, my supplemental plus what's, what's taken out of my Social Security check together are not more than a couple hundred dollars a month. That's about what Canadians pay for health care. And, and, you know, it's what people in most civilized countries pay for health care is between $150 and $350 a month, you know, depending on their circumstances. You know, I was paying premiums of over $1,000 a month for my health insurance just a few years ago when I was on private health insurance. We were running it through, through uh, United Healthcare, as I recall. And in right. particular, because both Louise and I had had uh, surgery for cancer. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I get that part. But I'm just saying we better fix what's not working for the seniors because I'm in the senior community and a lot of people don't get a lot of money in Social Security. Yeah, I know. And then I'm, they I'm, end up... I'm absolutely with you. I'm paying. absolutely with you, Barbara. And, and, this, and this, I think, is why Elizabeth Warren's plan to raise everybody's Social Security by $200 a month right off the bat by lifting the cap is, yep. is uh, well-received and a brilliant one. Barbara, thank you for the call. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? I didn't see the debate. Uh, unfortunately, I had to work, but I did hear uh, the snippets this morning from the various networks and this big deal made about Julian Castro's comment. Right. Now, it seemed really weird to me because when I looked at the, you know, the recordings of it, he said it. And then there was this great gasp by the audience. It seemed almost rehearsed. And I got to tell you, Tom, it reminded me of the only person that could have gotten me to the polls in 2016, what happened with Bernie Sanders and the DNC. I hate to say this, but it seems like the fix is in. And as you know, we have talked before. I don't, as far as I'm concerned, being a black man in the United States, neither party has served me well, but I certainly don't want to see Agent Orange again. But the reaction from the media to his comment seems to be way overboard. Am I misinterpreting something here? I think that there is a circle the wagons mentality in the media. And I don't think it's specifically Joe Biden. I think it's for Mm -hmm. any candidate who is not saying break up big corporations. Uh, I think the, the media is basically a monopoly in the United States. Um, right. Ben Beck Dickin has documented this with his book, The Media Monopoly, and uh, he, he passed away, and so it hasn't been updated in a number of years. But um, starting back in the 80s, every year they came out with a new edition, and we went from literally over 10,000 owners of newspapers, magazines, radio, and television stations in the United States in the, in the uh, late 70s to now where it's like 50 or 60 companies yeah. own the vast majority of everything. And in, right. in individual industries like radio, it's three companies. In television, it's four companies. Yep. Um, you know, mm-hmm. among newspapers, it's, I think, five or six companies. Um, in, in magazines, it's, it's fewer than a dozen. And so, uh, you know, when you've got candidates who are saying these are monopolies and these are, these are uh, destructive to democracy, then those, those, uh, that media infrastructure is going to do everything it can to protect its own interests and its own interests are, re- are well, represented you know, by candidates you know, when that happened, taking money from them. I'm sorry. 
Go ahead. When I got a little bit of an echo here, Tom. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, when that happened, the first thing, and I hate to say this, but the first thing I thought about is Donald Trump sitting there eating some Kentucky Fried Chicken, watching it and going, the fix is in, the system is rigged. I mean, y- y- you know, it- it- it's just, and I know I'm not the only person that saw that that way. Now, i got one really quick question for you that's totally divergent, and that's this. Whatever happens with the 2020 election, will the are the Democrats thinking about the fact that we will be living as a as a country with Donald Trump for decades after he leaves? And what I mean by that is the stacking of there was a Supreme Court decision a few days ago that was seven two. Tom, you've got a two thirds majority and these are young judges that he's put in. And he may be looking at if he gets a second term, he may be looking at two more appointments because I, I, I suspect that Clarence Thomas will probably step down during the Trump administration and Ruth Bader Ginsburg may just just have to. And I mean, we could be looking at Trump for another 30 years. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, yesterday or the day before, uh, Donald Trump tweeted out a uh, Trump 2024 bumper sticker. <laughs> you know, oh, my sure, God. Yeah, I'm sure he's saying he was just trolling people. But, uh, you know, that's that's what happened. So Ruben in Sherman Oaks, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Ruben, what's up? Yeah, I I, um, I know that Sanders and Warren stand where they stand on about 80 percent of the issues. I have no problem. I have no idea where Biden stands. I went to his website. Unless you sign up, you cannot find out his positions. Really? Also, he's too lazy to verbalize them. He keeps saying, go to my website, and you can't find out. I don't want to sign up. I expect lies from Republicans. I do not appreciate his dishonesty regarding Medicare for all. Well, it's not, it's not unique to Joe Biden. That position, that anti-Medicare for all position has been taken by other candidates as well. Essentially, Amy Klobuchar was echoing that, for example. Yeah, but he's running first. Right. He's top three. I also, he, he also never asked Bush and Cheney how they would have paid for the disastrous Iraq war. Right. And that he voted for and Sanders did not. Yep. These are a lot of the things that are going to go into the equation that's going to determine whether the base turns out for a Democratic candidate. And I would say that it goes even beyond just, you know, not just his voting for the Iraq war and for the first six months anyway, his cheerleading for it, but his voting for the bankruptcy bill that made it impossible for students to declare bankruptcy on student debt and his support for a number of things, criminal justice reform. You're absolutely right. That's why if he becomes the nominee, I will not vote for him. Well, I think if he becomes the nominee, we all have to vote for him. My concern is, Ruben, if he's the nominee, that there's a lot of people who are simply not going to vote, just like happened in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was the nominee. If we get another, you know, middle of the road corporate Dem, uh, you know, running for president, you know, Al Gore was, you know, running as essentially a middle of the road candidate. George W. Bush won. We could debate that, but George W. Bush ended up president. John Kerry was running as a middle-of-the-road president. It didn't work out all that well. You know, it didn't, you know, George W. Bush won re-election. Barack Obama won, uh, campaigned as a progressive, as had Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton's new covenant speech and Barack Obama's hope and change were explicit calls to the progressive base. Now, neither of them delivered on very much progressive legislation. And I think you could argue that Bill Clinton had a much greater opportunity to do so. Uh, Barack Obama only had 74 days where he had a, a filibuster-proof Senate. And in that period of time, 
He got a lot of good stuff done, including the Affordable Care Act, which the Supreme Court then later took apart. And now, you know, Trump is destroying. But, you know, the yeah. fact of the matter is that when Democrats run as progressives, as Clinton did and as Obama did, whether they're progressives or not, when they when they take progressive positions or whether they can deliver on them or not, people people will show up and vote for them. But when Democrats run as, you know, kind of Al Gore, John Kerry, middle of the road uh, centrists, uh, you know, they don't win. I agree with you. Obama's legacy, Obama's legacy is is Trump. Well, I, you know, legacy was George Bush. Yeah, I, I, I would not lay this. Uh, I would not lay Donald Trump at the feet of Barack Obama at all. And there's a lot of skeezy stuff that happened with this election as well. But I, you know, I think that what's happened, Ruben, is we are now in an era where Democrats, where a large chunk of the Democratic Party, but at least I think at least half, genuinely want a progressive candidate. Ruben, thank you for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Moving Forward by Corinne Jean-Pierre. This is from the introduction, Coming to America. I carry something special in my wallet. My cousin, Jean-Paul Pierre, gave it to me before my first day working for President Barack Obama in the White House. Remember this, he asked, as he handed me an old snapshot, the corners creased, the colors washed out. I gasped. I had forgotten the trip our extended family, me and my cousins, had taken to Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1982, just before I turned eight. There we were, seated on the base of the railing in front of the south lawn of the White House, with the Truman balcony in the far background. Jeanne gave me the photo to remind me of the pride my family takes in my success, of all of the people in the Haitian-American community I carry on my shoulders. I kept that photo with me from then on. Every day when I got money out of that wallet for a cup of tea or a bagel at the cafeteria in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building in Washington, D.C., I couldn't help but glance at the image of that timid, skinny young girl sandwiched between my much older cousins. Back then, I was so shy that the nuns who taught kindergarten at my Catholic school called my mother in to say that they were worried about me. She doesn't play with other children, they said. She just keeps to herself. Over the years, I worked hard to overcome that. You've made us all proud, Jeanette told me. Code for how unlikely it was, inconceivable really, that anyone from our family could get to the White House. My Haitian-American father and mother, a New York City taxi driver and a home health care aide, didn't closely follow American politics. They were more likely to discuss the viciously oppressive dictator dynasty of Francois Papadoc Duvalier and his son Jean-Claude Babydoc Duvalier, who ruled Haiti from 1957 to 1986, than any American president. Like many immigrants, they came here to find a better life for their children. I was proof that their struggle had been worth it. As an openly gay woman of color, I have also had my own struggles entering the world of politics, which even now can feel like a boys club. Despite the record number of women who ran and won in the 2018 U.S. midterm elections, women occupy less than 23% of the seats in Congress, even though more than half of the population is women. But when I was in the White House, I was usually too busy to think about how I had gone from being that meek schoolgirl with braids to the confident woman in a crisp tailored pantsuit who worked as Obama's regional political director in the Office of Political Affairs. I was the eyes and ears of the President of the United States in 12 northeastern states, from Maryland to Maine. The political affairs wing has three offices in a corner on the first floor of the EEOB. The Eisenhower Executive Office Building is a beautiful historic building close to the White House's West Wing. 
The West Wing is home to the Oval Office where the U.S. President works. The first time I flashed my security clearance badge to the sharply dressed Marine standing guard at the double door entrance and walked into the West Wing, I remember looking around and thinking, this is so small. It looks so much bigger on TV. As a campaign operative for Senator John Edwards in 2007 and 8, I binge watched the NBC 1999 to 2006 series starring Martin Sheen as a fictional American president named Josiah Bartlett. Still, it's hard not to be awed. I also felt a constant sense of responsibility because I was a black woman working for the first black American president. When you work at the White House, whether it's for a Democrat or a Republican, you have to put in a 12 to 15 hour workday or more. There's a reason why most people don't last a whole four year term. And under President Donald Trump, turnover among his staff has occurred at an historically high rate. It's an absolute joy, but it's also a heavy lift. I like to get there between 7 and 7.30 in the morning to prepare for our first meeting at 9 o'clock, and I rarely left before 9 p.m. I would go home to my furnished basement apartment in a semi-sketchy part of town in northeast Washington. I had taken a pay cut to work in the White House. My place was cold, dark, and dreary, but I knew I didn't need more than a place to crash. A good night's sleep was never a given. There were plenty of times that my boss emailed me at 1 or 2 in the morning expecting me to get back to him ASAP, and I did. In those days, I walked around with a BlackBerry phone, the preferred device for politicos for White House work in one hand, and in the other hand, another BlackBerry issued by the Democratic National Committee for political work. Taxpayers did not pay for President Obama to do fundraisers or other political events, so having different phones for different purposes kept us honest and out of trouble. Because I was so intent on doing things the right way, I even carried a third phone, a personal one, in my pants pocket for calls and emails with family and friends. This was not a requirement, I just wanted to be extra mindful. The stakes were too big to make a mistake. The pressure was high, but I was proud of my role and wouldn't hide it. When phone number three rang and I would tell the person on the other end I had just gotten off Air Force One of the president or I was about to make a trip with Vice President Joe Biden on Air Force Two, they would say, Kareen, listen to you, you don't even realize how cool your job is. Getting involved in politics can be intimidating. If you weren't participating in Debate Club or Young Democrats of America or Model United Nations by the time you finished high school, I know it can feel like you have no choice in politics. That's why I'm writing this book. I am proof that that's not true. I was a late bloomer. You hear stories about folks whose passions and talents were already obvious by the time they were in kindergarten. I am not like that. I first ran for office at Columbia University, and I wasn't drawn to a career in politics until after graduate school. Just how little did my family discuss American politics growing up? Meet Michael Dukakis. The first time I encountered politics was late on a Thursday night in July 1988. I was 13 years old. My sister Esther was six, and my brother Daniel four. My siblings and I were curled up on my parents' queen-size bed watching the television that sat in the corner of my mother's wooden vanity dresser. Moving Forward by Corinne Jean-Pierre. Picture your face in the mirror. See all those wrinkles around your eyes? How about crow's feet? Large under-eye bags? Now imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I tried it. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. I look just like me, only years younger. Simply put, I'm blown away by the result. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it, unless you tell them. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling one 800 
685-1292 and mentioning the code TOM. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code TOM at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Dave in St. Paul, Nebraska. Hey, Dave, you're on the air. My question was, and I've been waiting in vain, I'm sure, for somebody to ask at these candidates if they will prosecute or pardon the uh, previous administrations for their lives and sins. Uh, that would be uh, breaking precedent with anything that's happened since, what, 68? Yeah, since, since Jerry Ford pardoned Richard Nixon and then refused to continue prosecutions. Ford pardoned Nixon. Clinton yeah. chose to ignore the crimes of Bush and Reagan, including Iran-Contra, and yeah. Bill Barr's pardons that covered that up. Barack Obama chose to ignore the war crimes that uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney committed. Obviously, all of that led, in my opinion, directly to Donald Trump. I mean, you know, just to the lawlessness of this administration. I would be astonished if any of these candidates became president and went back and prosecuted any of those guys. But I think that if we don't prosecute Trump, you know, obviously through the uh, impeachment process, and if, uh, you know, a serious consideration is not giving to prosecuting many of his cronies who are working for him and with him in ways that are arguably illegal, I think that it's just, it's not a good thing for America. Thank you for the call. Colleen in Long Island, New York. There are so many things that can be discussed about this discussion last night, this debate situation. And, uh, you know, it's hard when you have all those different candidates and they don't really get a chance to drill down into the issues. So you just kind of cover at the surface moments. But um, right. I still come away with Bernie and Elizabeth. I like Buddha. Well, I, I should say Pete, but I like him. I think Kamala would make a great AG, but I'm not sure about the, you know, nomination situation with her. Mm-hmm. Corey kind of drifted around. Biden... I still have the same issues with him is that he's not focused. He wants to give you the information he wants to give you, and he's not directly answering the questions. The only thing with Elizabeth that I found is that she kind of danced around the Medicare issue. Well, she danced uh, around saying your taxes will go up because she didn't want to have that Walter Mondale moment that I played for Bernie. Right. No, and I heard that, and I agree with you, but you have to be a little bit more specific because you keep giving generalities. People are going to just get frustrated. And I think at the end of the day, what they walked away with was a draw for most of them. I think we kind of saw Amy drifting away and and Julio and uh, Andrew just not being... I want to stay really in the thick of things. Yeah. And Andrew Yang, I mean, you know, he's been perceived by and large as a single issue candidate. There was an interest. I I tweeted it out last night, in fact. Fascinating piece that Sam Cedar, a a friend and colleague who does a podcast called Majority Report, that Sam Cedar did uh, a couple of days ago where they were basically listening to Andrew Yang himself in an interview that he did with a libertarian. And Yang was saying, well, you know, if, if everybody gets $1,000 a month, then we can do away with all these social welfare programs from Social Security disability to food stamps to everything else. These are not the 
the specific and literal words that came out of Yang's mouth, but it was the essence of what he was saying. And this libertarian guy was like, yeah, yeah, cool. So, you know, destroy the social safety net. Well, the fact of the matter is that for somebody on social security disability, $1,000 a month, Franklin, probably isn't enough. I think you're right, because it almost sounds like a bribe, for one thing. Right. And what's going to keep it in place? We have these social services network or social safety nets. Right. And they are really in place. Yeah. So the question is, is Andrew Yang a conservative or a libertarian stalking horse, I guess? I don't know the answer to that question. It's kind of hard. He's like uh, hard to define and hard to place where he fits. But like I said, I think he's an outlier. Mm -hmm. I don't think that he's really a serious contender. I think that he has a lot of potential for some place in the cabinet, but not the main situation. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Pick up your phone calls here. Jennifer in Stillwater, Minnesota. Hey, Jennifer, thanks for listening to AM 950. What's up? Hi, Tom. Yeah, I just wanted to say um, on the debate, you know, I'm a huge Bernie supporter, and he was fantastic. And if the corporatists, you know, want to have a guarantee that we get rid of the lunatic Trump, that, you know, why in God's name don't they all just vote for Bernie? Then they won't have to worry about us, right? Well, I think the corporatists are um, a little worried about (laughs) Yeah, that is kind of a rhetorical question. But Joe Biden... um, yeah, last night he did, Julian Castro was spot on. He, Joe Biden did say that you could buy in. He said it multiple times, and Julian was right. And then later But at one said, point he said you're automatically enrolled, too, just before that. And, then, and that's, that's the piece that the news keeps going oh, back to to yeah, well, make it look like Julian Castro was being, uh, you know, wrong. And then Biden says you can be automatically enrolled in Medicaid. Well, right. I've got news for Joe. If you are a working person and all of a sudden you just lose your job and you need health care, you can't go on Medicaid. People on Medicaid have literally zero assets to qualify. You basically have to be under a bridge to qualify for Medicaid. You yep. cannot have a home. You cannot have a nice car or any savings or anything to be on Medicaid. So you're not getting on Medicaid. No, I, I, I get all that, Jennifer. But I think and, that, unfortunately, that Julian Castro came in you know, loaded for bear. This is his last chance. He's trying to get the same moderate voters that Joe Biden has trying to tear down Joe. Just, you know, it worked for Kamala Harris in the first debate. William Castro tried to do it last night. I don't think it's going to give him the kind of bounce that it gave Harris because it came across as snarky. And, you know, as much as I'm concerned about Joe forgetting where he is and what he's talking about, whether that has to do with his age or not, I honestly don't know. But I don't think most of it's age. I think most of it is that Joe's always been that way, which is why he never got past a Democratic primary and, you know, running for president in the past. I'm actually for Bernie. Yeah, I heard but that. But the thing is, is I knew that the media would go after him when, as soon as I heard that he had a sore throat, which instead of praising him for campaigning literally every day since 2015 in front of these huge outdoor audiences, like Bernie said when he was talking to you, he was in right. front of 10,000 people in Denver the other day. Right. Well, that's why he has a sore throat. And yeah. if he was 25 years old, he would have a sore throat. No, I got it. Jennifer, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. Andy in Redwood City, California, listening on 910 AM out of San Francisco. Hey, Andy, what's up? Yeah, Tom, I was taken aback last night by the uh, Univision reporter who asked Bernie that gotcha question on Venezuela and Maduro. He was kind of conflating yeah. socialism with dictatorship and authoritarianism. Yes. Yeah, we're, Republicans and I was really, love to do that. 
Absolutely. And you've had Greg Palast on the show. You know what the situation is there. It's the indigenous people against the, the one percenters. Yeah. And it's oil profits, the percentage of the oil profits that Maduro is not willing to give to U.S. petrol companies. That is really why we're trying to do regime change there, not socialism. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree, and I totally get it. Andy, thank you for that. Mike in uh, Grand Rapids, listening on 1680 AM. Hey, Mike, what's up? I think just one of the curious things I find is the DNC that's all about uh, equality. We've got three, only three of ten debaters are women, and seven of the debate, seven of the ten debaters are men. So we've got a white male, basically, uh, group there. And then we Mike, it's a hell of a lot better than it has been in the past. You had a gay man up there. You had, you know, uh, uh, you had an African American woman. You had an African American man. You had. A Hispanic man, you had, you know, yeah, it, we're still suffering from gender imbalance and and we're still suffering from racial imbalance. But, I, you know, I think it was just a heck of a lot better than it was. Carol in Egan, Minnesota. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. I'm holding myself back because I want to give everybody a good chance and everybody has a good day and everybody has a bad day. Mm -hmm. But as for your Amy Klobuchar things. I vote for her because she's a Democrat. I do not vote for her because she is in any way, shape, or form the kind of Democrat that I am. Right, but she's uh, she's not at least toxic. I mean, you know, she's right. so... Right. But I have come up with a, the people in the middle, and they're saying, you know, well, I'm moderate, and I'm in the middle, and I'm going, but if you're in the middle... The only way you can compromise with a Republican is to move right. Is that really what you want to do? Or do you want to move a little bit more left so that at least when you're negotiating, you're not going over to the enemy? Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I would say, you know, what does the middle mean? I mean, does that mean that you really want corporations controlling our health care system, you know, or, or the delivery of it, the payment of it? Does it mean that you want Social Security to be privatized? Does it mean that you want oh, yeah. Medicare to be privatized? Does it mean that you think the fire departments and police departments should be privatized? Do you, do you really think our roads should be privatized? I mean, these these are obviously mostly Republican wish lists. But this is the direction that people are going when they're embracing corporate power and calling themselves centrists. I think that when people talk about the divided country, well, we operate best when we're a divided country. If you look at the period from 1932 to 1980, we were a very divided country, and we operated very, very well. I would say, actually, we weren't so divided. We were still operating under Keynesian economics, so we were still operating under the New Deal, even Republicans. I mean, uh, Dwight Eisenhower in 56 ran for re-election on the fact that he had expanded the number of people who were members of unions and that over two million people had been added to Social Security. And he was pro-Medicare. He was pro-universal yes. uh, health care. Yes. So when I say divided, I mean there were... The Republicans and the Democrats were different parties, but nothing like today with right. the Republicans. I think they must drink something that makes them insane. They're drinking money. They're drinking money from the Koch brothers and other right-wing billionaires, and it is making them insane. You're absolutely right. And, I mean, up until the 1980s, the Republican Party, by and large, you could argue that some of this started with Nixon, but I think it really went on steroids with Ronald Reagan. Up until the 1980s, you could find Republicans who were, there were even progressive Republicans 
you know, you had moderate Republicans like like Nelson Rockefeller, who, you know, in 64, when he got up and gave that speech about moderation is a good thing. And then Barry Goldwater said, no, you know, <laughs> radicalism, fanaticism in the in the pursuit of liberty is no vice. And he got, you know, the screaming applause and, and Nelson Rockefeller got shouted down at the 64 Republican convention. That was the beginning. Yeah. That was when the crazies really started to take over the Republican Party, the John Birch Society and all these other guys. But it, they didn't really acquire that power. They didn't really seize the party until 1980. And ever since then, Republicans have refused to go along with anything reasonable with Democrats. And now it's they won't go along with anything, period. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.